Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning we're looking at Acts 2, 1 to 13, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And you'll find the passage in the uh, um, service sheet, if you're able to print it off or have it up on your screen, together with, on the back, an outline of the sermon so you know where we're going. Well, I read a piece in last week's newspapers um, by the former England uh, rugby player, Will Greenwood. In it, he was exploring how coaching skills from the playing field can be transferred to organisations. In fact, he identified five, but it's the first which relates to the passage we're considering this morning. The telescopic and the microscopic, he calls it. A great coach, he writes, can focus on the big picture and on the small detail can set long-term vision and work on short-term delivery. This is characteristic, he says, of some of the great chief executives he's met. They move from the big picture to the small detail in a heartbeat. Now let's think for a moment. Where has God got to in his big picture, in his long-term strategic plan of salvation. Well, recently, since Easter, we have seen the death of Christ on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and his appearances to multiple eyewitnesses, and finally, and most recently, his ascension to heaven. On the cross, this substitution of the perfect Jesus satisfied God's justice as a payment for our sins and in the resurrection we see that God approves of that substitution so that now in response to our repentance he is able to forgive us our sins from his position of authority to which he has ascended. Well what then is there left for him to do? 
Well, for the previous 2,000 years, God had worked primarily through one people, his people, the Jews, the descendants of Abraham and Sarah. His intention back then was not simply to be in a relationship with one ethnic group. He explicitly says that it is through the descendants of Abraham and Sarah that all the nations of the world would come to be blessed, by which he means in relationship with him. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. In the previous chapter, Genesis 11, at the Tower of Babel, the people of the world had been dispersed by God as punishment for their pride and rebellion against him. Diversity of languages was a consequence of that separation. Now, in Genesis 12, he's into his long-term rescue mission to bring them back to himself. And that's the big picture, what Greenwood would call the telescopic view. However, God has a microscopic problem, us. Just a small detail to fix. He's done all that's necessary for our forgiveness and restoration to be at peace with him. But how are we going to live the kind of life that he intends for us? A life that is like Christ's life. The Old Testament is a 2,000-year-old story of how human beings were unable to live up to the standards that God requires to be like him. What is required is a new nature, a change of heart, an enablement. Our past has been forgiven, but we need the energy and the resources to live the kind of life that we were meant for. D.H. Lawrence, the writer, wrote, If only one could have two lives, the first in which to make one's mistakes and the second in which to profit by them. I don't know whether whether he realised it, but that's exactly what God is offering us. These two issues are on the table in this passage this morning. The big picture, or the telescopic view, concerns the representatives of most of the nations of the then known world, gathered at Jerusalem, and how they heard the message. They heard what had happened that first Easter weekend. And then there are the details, the microscopic view. Because 50 days later, at Pentecost, they as individuals were transformed by the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the risen Christ residing in them. This is what had been lacking in the Old Testament, the old age, but we will see how it's become available for us who live in the new age. Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-like of character apart from his fruit and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit 
is dead. So wrote John Stott on this very passage that we're studying this morning. The Holy Spirit is indispensable. Now in his Gospel, Luke describes the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus when John baptised him so that he entered his public ministry full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, and anointed by the Spirit. And in Acts, we have now the same Spirit coming upon his disciples to equip them for their mission throughout the world. Michael Green, in his book, I Believe in the Holy Spirit, points this out very clearly. Although the Spirit of God came upon the Christian individuals in order to create in them a quality of life beyond their powers, and although the Spirit of God came upon the Christian community in order to unite them in a fellowship which could not be paralleled in any other group, there can be no doubt from a candid examination of the New Testament accounts that the prime purpose of the coming of the Spirit of God upon the disciples was to equip them for mission. The comforter, he says, comes not in order to allow men to be comfortable, but to make them missionaries. So we have transformed individuals to reach the whole world. The converts of Jesus would return, of course, to their homelands. The small detail to the big picture. In the early chapters of Acts, Luke refers to the promise, the gift, the baptism, the power and the fullness of the Spirit in the experience of the people of God. As Stott reminds us, the terms are many and interchangeable. The reality is one and there is no substitute for it. So that is our main part of the talk this morning. Let's look first at the microscopic level, the level of detail, and then more briefly, because it's simpler, the big picture. So what happened on the day of Pentecost needs to be understood in at least three ways, and we need to be clear about them or we get ourselves into a dreadful muddle and a lot of unnecessary misunderstanding, which we'd all surely want to avoid. So first, Pentecost was the last great event of salvation history until the Lord Jesus comes again. He had been born, had died, been resurrected and ascended and now he will send his spirit to work in them what he had won for them so they might be able to carry out his work until his return. And in this sense, of course, Pentecost is unrepeatable. Christmas Day, Good Friday, Easter Day and Ascension Day are annual celebrations of his birth, death, resurrection and ascension. What they commemorate happened once and for all. And now we have the coming of his Spirit on this day of Pentecost. Second, its primary function was to equip the apostles with the special enabling in order for all of them to carry out their very special role. You may remember on the night before he died, Jesus had a last supper. 
and he promised them that his spirit would come and would enable them to recall all that he had said and done whilst he was with them, understand it, and be inspired to reproduce it in both written and oral form, and so be the foundation of the church. They were to be his primary and authoritative witnesses. And third, Pentecost was the start of a new era of the Spirit. Although his coming was unique, an unrepeatable historical event, all the people of God can always and everywhere benefit from his ministry. And although he equipped the apostles to be the primary witnesses, he also equips us as his secondary witnesses. And although the inspiration of the Spirit was reserved and given to the apostles, the fullness of the Spirit is for all of us. Now in the Old Testament, the foundation for the people of God was the word of God delivered to the people by the inspired prophets. So in the New Testament, what we have is the foundation for the people of God being the word of God provided by the inspired apostles. But there was a difference. In Old Testament times, the Spirit of God only came on specific people, like priests and prophets, for a specific period and for a specific task. In New Testament times, he is within all believers, all the time, and in all that they have to do. So instead of short-term contracts for some, there are now permanent contracts for all. What they'd found in Old Testament times was that without the Spirit of God permanently residing within them, they could not live up to the demands of the Word of God. And so prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel predicted how the law of God or the word of God or the spirit of God, again almost synonymous terms, would have to be in us for us to live as God wanted us to live. Well, let's look at the details of the event. Like any good historian, Luke gives us the facts. So where was it? Well, we don't exactly know, but it was probably one of two places where they were all together. But whether it was still the upper room or one of the many rooms of the temple, Luke doesn't spell it out for us. But when was it? Well, the choice of the day of Pentecost by God for the coming of the Holy Spirit, I think, is very significant. The feast had two meanings, one agricultural and the other historical. In the Jewish agricultural calendar, Passover marked the start, the very beginning of the barley harvest. And then Pentecost, 50 days later, marked the completion of that barley harvest. The 3,000 who were converted that day of Pentecost marked the first fruits of Christian mission. And one day, At the end of time, we will doubtless see the completion of that harvest.
What's more, between the Old Testament being completed and the New Testament being started, the Jews had come to associate Pentecost with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai because that was thought of as being 50 days after the exodus from Egypt. So it's tempting, as Stott says, therefore to find the double symbolism of harvesting and law-giving in the day of Pentecost. Certainly there was a great harvest, 3,000 souls that day, the first fruits of Christian mission. And what the prophets regarded as almost identical, the Lord's two covenant promises from Ezekiel, I will put my spirit within you, and from Jeremiah, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, is what the spirit does when he enters our lives to write God's law there as the Apostle Paul later teaches in his New Testament letters. But Stott adds a little note of caution. He says, while it's tempting to find a double symbolism here, Luke doesn't in fact draw it out. So we don't know whether it was important to him, even though Jewish tradition associated wind, fire and voices the three phenomena which he's about to describe with Mount Sinai. But what of these three phenomena, as the Spirit of God came upon them, a sound, a sight, and strange speech? Well, first, verse 2, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind which filled the whole house where they were. Second, verse 3, a sight, what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, suggesting some kind of personal possession for each of them. And third, the strange speech. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit enabled them. And we should note, by the way, that the word translated tongues or languages mentioned three times in this passage in verses 4, 6 and 11 in the original is the same word. It can either be translated as a language or as that little thing in our mouth. So we have then before us three experiences which seemed like a natural phenomenon, wind, fire and speech, and yet were supernatural in origin and character. The noise was not the wind, but sounded like it. The sight was not fire, but resembled it. And the languages languages were not the normal language of the Galileans, Aramaic, but many other languages. Naturally, verse 12, they were amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, what does this mean? It's astonishing. Now we find out what it means by looking at other parts of Scripture. They help us to understand this part. When we do, we find these are what indicate that a new era of the Spirit had begun. So John the Baptist, Jesus' forerunner, had bracketed wind and fire together. So the noise, 
like wind, symbolised power, as Jesus had promised them for their witnessing. The sight, like fire, symbolised purity, as in the Old Testament, Isaiah 6, when the prophet began his ministry, a live coal touched and cleansed his lips, ready for the task. And the speech in other languages symbolises the universality of the Christian church, the worldwide community of believers that was being inaugurated here. While Luke says no more about the wind and the fire, instead he concentrates on the languages spoken by the apostles, verse 5. And this is where the telescope, the big picture, the strategy comes into play. And what do we know? Well, we know there was a large crowd. There were 3,000 converted on that day, so there were at least 3,000, if not more. They were composed of God-fearing Jews. They gathered in the temple courtyards, which was the only place in those days in Jerusalem that would be able to accommodate such numbers. They were there to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And they were from around the Jewish diaspora. We read from every nation under heaven, which doesn't of course literally mean every country of the world. He's speaking of the biblical writer's horizon, the Greco-Roman world, those places that the Jews had dispersed to at times of invasion and economic necessity. And there they settled, and there they formed Jewish communities. And they would return from time to time in their lives back to Jerusalem to celebrate the great feasts. Well, there are five groups listed here. As uh, uh, Luke's mind goes from east to west, they are... um, they, are, they, they cover areas which today are Iran and Iraq. They are around Jerusalem. They are modern-day Turkey. They are Egypt and Libya. They are visitors from Rome, from Crete, and from Arabia. And so we have this, mold, this international multilingual crowd gathered around the 120 believers And they are reported as hearing the wonders of God in their own native language, verse 8, or their own tongue, verse 10. The speakers are known to be Galileans. They had a particularly thick accent coming from the north. They, as I've said, would have spoken Aramaic, which was the colloquial Hebrew of the time. And they would have spoke what's called common Greek, the language of commerce, And possibly they'd have known a little bit of Latin because the Romans were the occupying forces and to do administration with them, you'd probably pick up a bit along the way. And yet, from these people, we hear at least 15 different languages. The people gathered hear these people speaking in languages they'd never learnt intelligibly so. So no wonder, verse 6, they are bewildered. 
And they ask, verse 12, what does this mean? Although there's a small minority of them who for some reason or other don't understand any of these languages and mock them, suggesting they'd had too much to drink, even though it's only nine o'clock in the morning. So what are we to make of this third phenomena in which Luke draws our attention to and in which the people hear the gospel in their own language? Well, I think the significance of the day of Pentecost is this. It symbolised a new unity brought about by the Spirit, which overcame the racial, nationalistic and language barriers that existed. A day when the crowd was composed of those from every tribe, every nation under heaven. As we've said already, he was not writing literally, but representatively. And it's interesting that Luke includes the descendants of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. Luke's list of nations here in Acts 2 is comparable to the list of nations in Genesis 10. Most of Luke's list is composed of Semites, people like uh, from Elam, which is today part of uh, southern Iran. The Egyptians and the Libyans are, they are the places where the Hamites lived. And the Cretans and the Romans are descendants of the Japhites. So what's going on here? I think what's going on is a very clear reversal of the curse of Babel. At Babel, human languages were confused and the nations were scattered. In Jerusalem, the language barrier was supernaturally overcome, a sign the nations would now be gathered together in Christ, prefiguring the great day when the redeemed company of heaven will, as it says in the book of, Rome, uh, book of Revelation, be drawn from every nation, every tribe, every people and every language. What's more, at Babel... Earth had proudly tried to reach up to heaven with their tower, whereas here in Jerusalem, heaven humbly descended to earth once again. So in summary, the kingdom of Christ is to be a multiracial, multinational, multilingual kingdom. The successful outcome of the day of Pentecost can be seen in our own church today and in the gatherings that will take place throughout the world today. Our own church is composed of approximately 25 different nationalities, a living example of this multiracial, multinational, multilingual community that is the church. And today, some of the 5,000 inhabitants of Kiribati in the Pacific Ocean, formerly known as Christmas Island, will have been the first to have worshipped the one true God through Jesus Christ in the Spirit today. And later today, Americans on Midway Island in the Western Pacific 
will be the last to worship Jesus Christ today. Now all this is possible because the Spirit of Christ has come and will come into the lives of any of us who come to Christ in penitence and faith. And he will equip them as he equips us to live the Christian life and be his witnesses throughout the world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have had a steady, strategic, global plan from all eternity. And we marvel at the patience with which you have taken to execute it. And we thank you for the detail of including us, who look pretty insignificant, and yet you value us so dearly. We pray that we might have contrite hearts, and if we've never done before, to repent of our sins and invite you into our life. And you do so through your Spirit, to change us to be more like the Lord Jesus in character and in purpose. Amen.